Hey, good morning, and thank you for joining us at First. My name is Daniel, and I'm our group's pastor, and we're grateful that you're here for week three of Grinched. I'm pretty proud of myself, I'm not going to lie. So thank you for humoring me for a moment. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, you all have leaned in, and we really appreciate that. And I guess it's like okay to say Merry Christmas now. Are we in the appropriate range where like that's acceptable? Yes, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Wow. Feeling the love. So with that said, uh, we always say this phrase, tis the season, and what in the world does that even mean, honestly? Tis the season to be jolly, right? That's where we start, which I still haven't quite figured out what exactly that means. Do we mean like we're describing, we're kind of like Santa Claus, like ho, 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 jolly? I don't even know. Tis the season to do fun stuff, like do nostalgic things, like bake cookies with your family or whatever Christmas treat that you love. Tis the season to buy and give presents, of course, we all love that, right? Tis the season to sing the songs that we only sing once a year, unless if you're those terrible people who put on the playlist in September with your Christmas music. It's just unforgivable. I can't, I can't get beyond that. Tis the season to visit the great or not so great family. I'm sorry if I just made it awkward for anyone in here right now. Um, tis the season to wear ugly sweaters. Of course, we've leaned into that. And one more, this is going to be a little bit closer to home, so just forgive me in advance. Tis the season to justify our impulses of buying more, 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 and more until we're in back-breaking debt. Yay, debt, right? So if we're being honest, right, Christmas grants us this opportunity that we don't get much of the rest of the year to just kind of say yes to the things that we typically say no to. We kind of emotionalize it a little bit, and we justify buying stuff. And let me be clear, I am the absolute worst at this. I went to the mall to buy a couple hats for my brother-in-law and my dad, and it just so happened to be buy two, get one free. So I was treating myself on Christmas at the mall yesterday, and I got a pretzel because who doesn't get a pretzel at the mall? Am I right? So Really, what I'm finding out, though, is that we, and I, I'm totally a part of this, we look to stuff for satisfaction, don't we? Fill in the blank. Whatever it is, we look to things to fill a need in our soul. And I'm the worst at this, right? I've just admitted that. But really, the question that I want to ask today is, is that stuff that you're using to fill the hole in your soul really something that lasts? Is it something that endures? Is it something that you can truly take to the bank, so to speak? The question I'm really asking is, are you looking to something that's temporary, or are you looking to something that is enduring or eternal for satisfaction? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. It's the first book of the New Testament, and it's about two-thirds away through the book. But as you're turning there, one thing I want to acknowledge is that the emotions we feel, our desire to fill the needs of our heart with stuff, it's not a brand new thing. As long as there's been stuff, people have been trying to fill their needs through stuff, okay? And that's where we land in the story today of Jesus meeting this rich young man. And I want to share a little bit of that story with you, starting in verse 16. It'll be on the screen as well. This is what it says. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. He's getting kind of clever here. 
Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, all these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, well, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. You know, he's got to be thinking, man, I expected that to go way better than it turned out, right? The young man, on the surface level to us, he appears to just be this regular, well-to-do, rich, young Jewish man. And for better or for worse, in Jesus' time, it was really common to think that wealthy people were just a little bit holier. Do we ever do that? Do we ever look at people according to the stuff that they have and think, man, they must have done something right? Well, this is pretty much how it was in Jesus' time, except maybe even a little bit more intense. But more importantly, we look at this young Jewish man, and the young man, he's interested in knowing not just how he can secure God's favor in the life he's living, but he wants to know how he can keep God's favor for forevermore. So I wonder, i got to ask you, are you looking for something? Have you been searching for something that truly lasts? Maybe it's love. Maybe you're just looking for security. Maybe you just want peace of mind this Christmas season. So as Christians, one of these questions that we ask is really similar to the question of this rich young man. It's that same words, how can I inherit eternal life? How can we inherit the eternal life that we were intended to have when God created the world before sin had fractured our relationship with God, our relationships with one another, and our relationship with the world itself? How do we get that life? So the young man asked, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And you can already tell Jesus is already a little bit skeptical of the guy. And he kind of responds, okay, for stars, pump the brakes, okay? You know there's only one who is good, God himself. I'm going to go ahead and answer your question anyway. And he proceeds to list off five of the commandments and then wrap up the rest of it by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. You notice what's going on here? You ever recognize that a lot of the times we aren't really searching for the answers, but in general we want to answer the questions ourselves? It's kind of what this young man is doing. As Matthew retells the story, it seems as if, and the passage doesn't say this directly, but it almost seems as if the guy is asking this question just to prove an example of how good he is so he can answer, yes, I've passed the test 100%. Now, how can I get extra credit? Pat me on the back, Jesus. So Jesus, without directly saying it, pretty much helps the guy understand that he's completely missed the point. And he says this, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Isn't that a bummer? And the rich man goes away sad because he couldn't get over himself and his wealth to truly love other people and to follow Jesus. Now, it's easy to point at him, but have you ever held on to your stuff so tightly that you missed the truest blessings in life? Have you ever held on to a relationship that you thought was the spice of life, that you were so stoked about this person, only to miss the unconditional love that was there from your family and friends all along? 
Or maybe this is hitting so close to home because like the rich young man, you're recognizing in this moment that if Jesus asked you to let go of the thing that you're holding onto in your heart, that you would probably say no too. We all reach this point, right? And so I gotta ask you again, are you looking to something that's temporary or are you looking for something that's eternal for true satisfaction? Now let's lay this down for a second. This is not just an excuse for us to vilify the wealthy. That's not what's going on here. That's not the point. Wealth is a tool. I can use wealth and you can use wealth to honor God and to honor other people. Or I can use it to honor myself, right? We can choose either of those paths. But the whole point of this interchange isn't just to rag on rich people. The whole point is that this well-to-do young man wasn't willing to let go of the thing that had captive his heart so he could grasp on to the true things that would last forever. Now, I don't know about you, but I really learned about how stuff doesn't truly satisfy for the first time in Christmas 1998, okay? Let's go back in the time machine for a second. There was this thing called a PlayStation 1. It, it was a real thing before there was 1, 2, 3, 4. The original PlayStation, and all my friends were getting it, and I just asked Santa Claus, I want the PlayStation. I want it really, really bad. And there I come downstairs on Christmas morning, and there it was with a controller and with NFL Game Day 1999 with the sickest graphics that had ever been in the entire world. You know, I'm a Fairweather fan at heart, so the Broncos had won the Super Bowl that year, and I was all about being John Elway and Terrell Davis and Shannon Sharp on rookie mode, scoring tons of points and just feeling really good about myself. And I played this game nonstop for the rest of Christmas break. You ever had a kid who's gotten a hold of a video game system? I'm that kid, okay? We can't even have them in the house anymore because I'm still like a 12-year-old cart. But anyhow, I'm just emoting a little bit right now because what ended up happening is I go back to school and I'm bragging to all my friends about this awesome PlayStation 1 that I have. And my friend who lived right down the street is like, oh yeah, <laughs> you got a PlayStation 1, huh? And NFL game day 99? Well, Santa gave me a PlayStation 2 controllers and five games. And this was like not necessarily a kid who would have been on the nice list. You know what I'm saying? And I'm having this existential crisis as an eight-year-old. Just like, he was bad. I was gooder. And he got so much more than me. And so I come home weeping to my parents. The kid down the street got more than me for Christmas. And I couldn't even enjoy playing my game anymore. Now, here's what I'm finding out. If we aren't inspired by things that truly last, the stuff that doesn't last will never be able to fill our needs as well. We'll just keep wanting more and more and more and more. See, this summer we walked through the book of Ecclesiastes in this really fun series that we called Meaningless. And the point of the whole series wasn't that life is meaningless. The point was that when life isn't clear, it doesn't mean that life is meaningless. And so the author of this book of Ecclesiastes, again and again, he talks about our wealth and our stuff, because guess what? We've all been trying to cling on to our wealth and our stuff as long as people have been walking around on the face of this planet. And so he gets to this point and he says this, so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then must leave all they own to another who is not toiled for it. This too is meaningless 
It's not clear. It doesn't make sense why this happens in a great misfortune. Now, I want to share some good news and some bad news for you. Can we start with the good news? We're in the holiday season, okay? So the good news is that if you struggle letting go of your stuff, one day you will learn to let go of your stuff, okay? Here's the bad news. Some of us are going to have to die to learn how to let go of our stuff. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? You can't pack a U-Haul behind your hearse. And if you did, people might think you're a little bit weird, but we just don't do that. The stuff that we work so hard to get, guess what? It's fading away. It's not going to last. The real question is this, though. Are we going to let go of that stuff willingly, or are we going to go down to the grave holding our hands like this to the stuff that we think matters more than anything else? See, what I'm finding out, it's only when we learn to release our grip on the things that we think matter that we can begin to embrace the life that truly is life. Next time that you really desire something, I want you to do a little soul check because I think our souls are the best indicator that stuff doesn't satisfy. Because catch this, if you get more and get more and get more and then you still want more, isn't that an indicator that maybe that's not the point of life? How many of us walk through life, like me, thinking the next get is going to get me to a place of satisfaction? The next car, the next promotion, the next house, the next car, again, apparently, a second thing, like another relationship, only to realize that we get it and it doesn't satisfy us. But here's the thing that I'm learning. I'm not really sure if getting more really ever got anyone anywhere. I'm not sure. Now, I got to pause because for some of you, the story is completely different this morning. See, there's this really sad contrast that's going on in this season. While some of us are going and racking up our credit card bill at the mall, there are some of us who are just trying to make ends meet in this season. So you're in a completely different boat. See, there's some of you who are just trying to support your family so you can make it through these winter months. You know, there's a big difference between getting a job and worrying about a promotion that we think we deserve. There's a difference between getting the car and having to have the next newest upgrade. There's a difference between getting enough to get by and buying stuff we don't need to impress people we don't really like. You know what I'm saying? God wants to provide for our needs. The problem is we don't do a really good job at differentiating between what we need and what we want. We've shared this quote before, but it's no less profound. The actor who played the Grinch, Jim Carrey, in the 2003 movie said this. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. It's home pretty hard, doesn't it? And if you're like me, I'm like, well, I'm at least going to try, right? So when we look back at the rich young man, we recognize something pretty profound. He walked away with absolutely everything and nothing at the same time. But here's the thing. We don't have to follow suit. We don't have to be like that. And Jesus wanted his friends to understand that. And so this is how he explained what just happened in that interchange with the rich young man. Then Jesus said to his disciples, we're continuing in verse 23, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this gets really encouraging here. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I don't know what happened to the rich man, and neither does anyone else. There are theories, there's speculation, but we don't ever get to pick up on his story for the rest of the book of Matthew. He just disappears from the storyline. But can you imagine the disciples' jaws dropping? Again, in their minds, the rich were a leg up. They had an extra cheat code when it came to pleasing God because they had more to offer to God. At the very least, they must have been thinking, man, Jesus, we could have let this guy come alongside for us and he could have paid for our fast food while we're trouncing about Israel. He could have bought us a new pair of sandals or something like that. He could have hooked us up with the network and gotten a better flock of camels for us to ride around on. That's not in the Bible. That's just pure speculation. I just want to make that abundantly clear. So why is it hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? It has less to do with wealth than you might think on the surface level. But it has everything to do with the things that we're holding on to in life. Tightly gripped, not willing to let it go. So, maybe you think you can have it both ways. Maybe you think to yourself, I can have a right relationship with God and find my true satisfaction somewhere else. I can have it both ways. So, let's think about this for a second. A rich man, again, this is defined as someone who is in love with their stuff and the things they've accomplished, right? So why don't we replace rich with something else? Can you find perfect satisfaction and perfect religiosity? Being holy, being upright? Can you find satisfaction in beauty and attractiveness? Can you find it in intelligence? Can you find it in status and fame? Maybe your health and athletic prowess. Or maybe it's things that you think, like your political ideology, that you're convinced it's completely perfect. Maybe you're just clinging for satisfaction to the gift you're going to get for Christmas this year. And maybe it's a number of other good things. So I'll play ball with you. Maybe you get the thing you want. You get all the money you could ever imagine. You hit the lottery. There's still someone who's going to be richer than you. Yeah, it feels good to be smart, but guess what? There is someone smarter than you out there, in case you hadn't heard yet. It feels good to do good works, but there is always someone more commendable to you than you cannot do as much good works as some other person who will get more credit than you if that's the thing you're looking for satisfaction at. It feels good to be good looking, but guess what? It doesn't last. I mean, I'm looking in the mirror here recently and I see gray hairs coming out of my beard and I'm just like, what is happening right now? See, there's always going to be someone prettier than you. Always someone more attractive. Always someone who's just a step beyond you in whatever your step of satisfaction is. Life is going to give you plenty of rabbit holes to just chase. All these rabbit trails going after again and again and again. Here's what we're finding out, though. Only one is worthy of eternal satisfaction. And that's the riches of the cross. What we believe is this. Until Jesus is enough, you'll never have enough. Until Jesus is enough for me, I'm never going to have enough. I'm always going to be desiring something else. So I want to share a secret with you. And it's something that I haven't quite figured out, but I'm chasing after it with my entire life. And it's this. Losing my life is the best thing that ever happened to me. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Jesus said it far better than I ever could. This is from Mark chapter 8. 
It says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I know that's a question that we've heard whether or not you knew it was from the Bible. But I wonder, have we actually ever considered the ramifications of that question? Would you get and take everything you ever wanted if you lost the very thing that made you you? What would you choose? Stuff or satisfaction? True freedom, what I'm finding out, it doesn't come from getting more and more and more. We believe true freedom comes from losing ourselves and the reality of the cross. And I'm not just talking about believing in your head that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. I'm not talking about writing off the perfect list of religiosity. What I'm saying is you're so lost in the mystery of the cross that Jesus would die and raise again to set us right with God that you're willing to drop everything and follow him and sell everything if necessary, if that's what it means to follow Jesus. Let me clarify, this is not a guilt trip about the amount of presents that you have bought this season. Some of us still need to go shopping after church today. I'm, you know, looking out for you. Just remember that, okay? The rest of us, maybe we're looking for this form of satisfaction and we're finding out that, hey, we're saying this is a Jesus thing at the church and you just think this is all about us hoodwinking you into giving more money to the church. This is not about that at all. What I'm asking is, what would life look like in a blanket way if you truly looked to Jesus for the source of your satisfaction? Because guess what? It's all going to fade away. The two PlayStation 1 controllers that my parents' guilt bought me after I came home crying, they both broke, okay? I'm all, we're all going to continue to age. All the things that we're holding on are going to continue to fade. But we believe true satisfaction is found in Jesus Because the kingdom of Jesus is the only thing that lasts. Let's move to our time of response. So maybe you're asking yourself today, is this really worth hopping all in for? I mean, I hear what you're saying. I've never found satisfaction in the right relationship, the perfect relationship, the perfect thing, the perfect Christmas gift. I've gone chasing after a ton of different things and have left dissatisfied over and over and over again. But you know, this whole thing about finding riches in the cross, it sure doesn't make a lot of sense. Because when I look at your Lord and Savior Jesus, and I see what the cross did to him, I'm not really convinced that that worked out well for satisfaction and for freedom for Jesus. I think that's a fair statement to make. Because when we look at Jesus' life, when we look at his death, we understand that he was strung up on a Roman cross, crucified, tortured, mocked, spit on. That's what his way of life got him. And maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I don't really want to hop in to that. And if that's your perspective, I think you have frankly got a really good point. 
Because when I look to the cross and I think about what Jesus endured, I know for certain that it wasn't satisfaction for him. I know for a fact that it wasn't freedom to be strung up and impaled on a Roman cross. No, the cross, it wasn't just physical torture. It was a thing that the Roman Empire used when someone made too bold of claims about themselves to make sure that people recognized that Caesar was Lord. And so they'd put him up by the road and crucify him so people could go by and mock and understand that following that way of life was totally and unequivocally not worth it. So it's a fair point that the cross was not necessarily freedom and satisfaction for Jesus. But imagine if Jesus could take death and shame and torture itself and turn it into life. That he could take sin and brokenness and turn it into forgiveness. That he could take sorrow and despair and in his life, death, and resurrection give us a reason to hope and find satisfaction. Man, wouldn't that be something worth chasing after? with your entire life? Here's what I'm finding out. If Jesus really did die and raise from the dead, if he really did conquer sin and death, that is something worth me chasing after with all my life. There isn't a single thing that compares to the riches of the cross if Jesus really did raise from the dead. Let's pray for a moment and then we'll set up our time for response. Jesus, help us to see you clearly. We want to know you. We want to know the power of your life. But we're entangled in a bunch of stuff. We've gone chasing after so many different things. And we're not sure if we're done chasing after some other new things in the future. Help us to recognize that in your life, death, and resurrection, there is true freedom and hope to be found. And that satisfaction can truly be ours when we let go of our stuff we cling tightly to you. I pray we wouldn't try to save our lives to the extent that we lose them. I pray that we'd lose our lives for your sake so that we could know true life. We praise you. Amen. So if you're new to First, there are a few things that we do in this time that are a little bit different perhaps. We give and respond in these moments because we believe the gospel really deserves our everything, this good news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. So you're going to see some people standing up and moving to the back of the room and the front of the room, and there are give and respond boxes by all of the auditorium doors. These are just folks who are so wrapped up in the message of Jesus that they are literally giving their stuff away to propel the mission of Jesus. You'll also see folks grabbing out their phone and using the Give app. That's another way that we're propelling our culture of generosity. But again, this is not a situation where we're trying to guilt you into giving. The whole point here is that when you're captivated by Jesus, it's hard to hold on to your stuff. And we're captivated as a church family, and we want to see his name made great in Champaign County and East Central Illinois and beyond to the ends of the world. Another thing you're going to see is people taking those connection cards and folding them up. You put a little contact information on there, and you can drop those in the give and respond boxes as well. If you're ready for someone to pray for you, or if you're ready to take a next step, we'd love for you to do that.
and fold those up and put those in the give and respond boxes in just a minute. The other thing you're going to see is there are going to be people who are going to be walking right up to the front of the stage by these prayer benches and kneeling down and surrendering themselves to God. And there's a reason for this, honestly, because a lot of us recognize that even if we've been following Jesus, our stuff has a really convenient way of getting back a hold of us again. So whether you're coming to Jesus for the first time or if you need to come to him again, I would use this as an opportunity to hold your hands out in openness and a posture of surrender and say, Jesus, you can have my stuff. I want the life that is truly life. So if you feel compelled to do that in just a moment, you can respond in our time of response by coming up here and doing that. But finally, the thing that draws all Christians together everywhere, not just in our church building, but all across the world, is a simple meal that we call communion. There are these six tables around the room, and there are these little emblems. There's a little cup of juice and a little piece of bread, and we take the bread and we take the juice to recognize that it is Jesus' body represented by that bread and Jesus' blood represented by that juice that ties us together as a family and that truly sets us free to experience the life that is truly life. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, we want you to participate in that, and we want you to respond by doing that. So with all that said, all those things that you can do in this time, we're about to sing a song that has wrecked me again and again and again. And the message of this song, it'll transform you if you give it the opportunity to. It is frankly not a new song, but it's a song that's been making people new from the time that it's been sung from generation through generation. So this is our hope. This is our declaration. Our hope is found alone. Would you stand with me? We're going to give and respond in worship in this time.